In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. time of retreat is always a time of silence, a time of prayer and discernment, always uh, with a sense of deep yearning, that is, a real desire to change and to be different, to be different. But no human force can really heal the wound of original sin within us, so What's going to transform us? Or how are we really going to be transformed with that yearning we have to be, you could say that, another man? Well, we hear in the Gospel how Christ speaks to Nicodemus and speaks to him about being born again. And Nicodemus doesn't quite grasp the exact issue. He sees it very materially or very physically. But with time he would have understood this new life, this being born again, as referring to baptism. And certainly that's what we have to let him do, that our baptism somehow has to take on a new power, a new transformative power. Yet we see that many Catholics have indeed been baptized, but somehow they haven't really been transformed. If the Lord says you you must be born again, really to be transformed, but but so many people have been baptized, but it's as though nothing happened. We can lament this, uh, I don't know, secularized society or lack of formation, but at the same time, many priests have received the power of ordination. They can act in persona Christi, but maybe they're not fully transformed from within they have the necessary powers, but somehow the intertwining between their baptism and their ordination seems to have sometimes stayed a bit stagnant. Maybe they have excessive attachment to, to, to worldly values or, or vanity or the attachment to being liked, to being popular. Other times it's just an unwillingness to acknowledge the sins of our life, even mediocrity. I read about this journalist in the U.S., in in California, who had been doing interviews and photographs, mainly, I think mainly photographs, but interviews and photographs of uh, famous people, famous actors, Hollywood types, very successful people. And they would want nice, beautiful portraits of themselves, and you know, for whatever promotional reasons they needed those. And he was an excellent photographer, but with time, he he somehow got tired of all this glitter, and he decided to really go to 
to the, you could say, the opposite end, the people who are really the down and outs of life. And not only to photograph them, but also to interview them. Because he felt that when he was talking to famous people, he was not really getting to the truth of these people. They managed to keep a, a great facade. He felt it was all just appearances. So he started this YouTube channel called the Soft White Underbelly. Soft White Underbelly. That's a, that's a phrase from Winston Churchill from the war about Italy as the soft underbelly of Europe. It seems that in 1942 he had a meeting with Stalin and uh, Field Marshal Allen Brooke. It was a very difficult meeting that he had to convince them not to invade France right away. That there would be no immediate invasion of France. He said that giving them that news was like delivering a large lump of ice uh, to the North Pole. I mean, it was, it was not pleasant news. And uh, Stalin objected constantly to all the strategies that Churchill proposed against, uh, against Germany. So at one point, Churchill is said to have gone to a board and drawn a picture of a crocodile. And he said, in order to attack, you have to go to the soft underbelly of this crocodile. And that, he said, is Italy. He said, he, he apparently drew the Mediterranean, he drew the, the Gibraltar, North Africa, Mediterranean, Sicily, and then Italy is where we attack. He said, boys, we should slit the soft belly of the Mediterranean. And they were all like totally convinced. <laughs> well, though they were persuaded, and indeed it was fairly easy to slit the the government of Italy, it was not easy to go through the terrain, the Italian terrain, it was very difficult. But it certainly convinced them to slit that, uh, that underbelly. And that phrase, the soft underbelly, uh, became iconic for many of his contemporaries. And it's, it's an image that helps us to understand what, what is my soft underbelly, right? What is uh, the weak area that I need to attack really to get at the rest of that outer coating that is sometimes uh, impenetrable? Maybe, you know, if I were to, to get in that underbelly, that habit, that, that dominant defect of mine, that fear, maybe that anxiety about myself, uh, I would begin to have more dominion over that beast. When Churchill said that we slit the Mediterranean and we conquer the beast. Well, at that time it was just unthinkable to go across the English Channel. They just didn't have the, the wherewithal that in 1942. Later that's also what they did at great cost, of course. Well, we all have a soft underbelly under that outer shell. It's that weakness that we have to address, that dominant defect. And we ask uh, the Holy Spirit now for the light so that we can really like, wage, wage proper war in that area. Now this photographer, he used that phrase, white soft underbelly, to refer to, I guess, in his case, American society as a whole, and that the poor, the drug addicts 
you know, those were the, the softer part of, the, of America that would tell us a lot more. And so he started interviewing all these vulnerable people, these drug addicts, these gang members, uh, victims of abuse, the homeless, uh, tattooed gangsters, uh, even members of the KKK, ex-cons, uh, and practically in every case you got lots of tattoos. <laughs> and he sets them behind this, in front of this uh, beautiful, colorful background with beautiful lighting, and he just lets them speak. Totally uncensored about their hard life. It was very moving to see, well, these, these very vulnerable people speak, and some of them, I don't know if you'd want to be in the same room with them. And I remember seeing one where he speaks to a Chinese gang member, again, covered, covered practically from head to toe in tattoos, and he tells about his life growing up in, in a suburb of L.A., being beaten by his father regularly, eventually joining a gang, getting involved in violent crime and drug addiction. They all, many of them say, yeah, crystal meth, that's my drug of choice. You know? Others say heroin and others say this and that. And his rationale was that he would only be happy if he only did what he himself wanted to do. If he were to do anything, that, you know, something that somebody else wanted him to do, he, th he thought to himself, well, that, I'm not going to be happy if I do that. That would make me unhappy. So he would always reject anything he didn't like and only did the things that he wanted to do. That's what will make me happy, he thought. But during that whole process, he describes this deep emptiness, this darkness, this weight that he describes as a kind of empty, empty inside. He eventually had to do 12 years of prison. He got out on parole. And, of course, he wanted to make some money. I mean, he couldn't get a job anywhere. He couldn't even get a job in a McDonald's. There was just nothing he could do because of that, uh, you know, that uh, history of his. Uh. So he decided, well, if I have to make money, I'm going to rob a drug dealer. And he decided, together with a friend, to, drug, to, to rob a certain drug dealer, to sneak up behind the drug dealer's car, and then they would rob him. And that, then life would be better. And so he agreed with him to sneak up on the drug dealer's car from behind, hold him at gunpoint, and demand his money. And he said, well, I will go on the right side, and you go on the left side. You go on the driver's side, I go on the right side. Okay? Okay, let's do that. So they planned it all, and the car was parked there, and they moved behind the guy and in the last minute, just the last minute, they changed sides. For one reason or another, it was a misunderstanding of something. And so his friend now was on the right side and he was on the left. And as he gets there, he hears a, he hears a gunshot. And he thinks that, that it's his friend who shot the, the gangster. But suddenly the car sped off and there he saw his friend mortally wounded just been shot by the drug dealer and he, he lay dying in his arms. Of course, he knew that I was supposed to be there. I was supposed to be that one. I was supposed to be the one who has who's just been shot and killed. And so he describes how everything in his life was now all about death. He saw death 
haunting him everywhere. And uh, and it was, uh, of course, a, a low point in his life because he, he was expecting to die any time. And little did he know that that was, in some way, his soft underbelly. Because he'd always rejected God. He'd been a decided atheist. He'd been brought up in a Buddhist family. He didn't want anything to do, nothing to know about religion whatsoever. But his mother had become Christian. And, but he, again, he was very, very uh, you know, resistant to, it, to even talking about God. So, but his mother said, can you drive me to church? Can you, I need to. And he said, well, okay, I can drive you to church, sure, no problem. And he drove her to the church, and there a very astute pastor came out to greet him. And uh, he said to himself, I'm not going to talk about God. I'm not going to talk about God. Just don't talk to me. I do want to know nothing. And uh, the pastor said, you know, we have some... Chinese noodles in the back, you know, if you want. We have some Chinese noodles. They have this style, whatever. He, those were his favorite Chinese noodles, you know. He says, well, you know, it's just eating, you know, so whatever, you know. I guess I don't have a problem with that. And he was, like, excited about eating these noodles. And, of course, a very, very <laughs> astute pastor. And the pastor, as the guys, they're both eating these noodles, um, the pastor asks him, so what is sin? Can you tell me what sin is? He goes, dude, I mean, the sin is, uh, you know, it's like uh, killing somebody, uh, stealing, you know, doing something bad, you know? That's what sin is. Why? Because he was still very resistant to it, even speaking about God. He was a very matter of fact, yeah, you know, breaking somebody's head open, I guess that's a sin. He said, no, you're wrong. That's not sin. The guy was surprised. He says, you have to know two things. First, sin is relying on yourself and only doing what you want right? as the meaning and purpose of your life. Relying on yourself. And immediately that was already a shock to him that he should somehow know this about him. It's relying. That's the first thing. Right? He said, the second thing is that that is something inherited. You didn't choose to be Chinese, but you inherited it from your father. You were basically born flawed, like Adam. Not that being Chinese is flawed, but uh, but and so suddenly this completely changed the perspective of this uh, this young gangster. And so, through a series of analogies, this pastor began to convince him about the reality of sin, and invited him to ask forgiveness to. To his father, his father to whom he had such a resentment for because he beat him constantly as a child and he hadn't been, he hadn't seen his father for years, you know. And he says, what, what are you talking about? You want me to ask forgiveness to my father? He's the one who should ask forgiveness to me for leaving me with this childhood. But something told him that he had to do that. And sure enough, he called up his father and he says, who's this? It's your son. So I can't give you any money is the first thing he said. And he said, no, I don't want your money. I don't want your money. I want to talk to you. So he, fu- he finally spoke. And, uh, you know, he, he speaks, uh, w- you know, in a very moving way how he, how he tells his father, I, you know, uh, I ask for your forgiveness. I'm sorry for what I did to you. And then this, like, 
took the, the father out of, uh, you know, just shook him up, and then he asked forgiveness, and, then, and there was this beautiful reconciliation. You know, and, and it started with the recognition of what sin is. It's not to do this bad thing, that bad thing. It's to live your life as you want to live it. That's what will make me happy. And, I mean, the, the pastor was, was astute enough to guide him, and then presumably the, the fellow went through a deep conversion. And, and, of course, that's what we ask for, too. We ask for a deeper conversion. Maybe we have uh, kind of focused this retreat, I have to do this, I have to do that thing, how can I do this better? And, and we sort of turn around on sort of these uh, micro problems, you know, micro issues. And perhaps we have to look at a, a broader perspective of the surrender to Christ, of our priesthood, as we act in persona Christi, which implies, if we act in persona Christi, a readiness to let ourselves be fully transformed beyond all our expectations without setting any limit to that modification of our nature under his influence. I mean, we can say this about baptized Catholics or we can say this about ordained priests. The priest you know, who does not have that readiness to change really only has a superficial change in his mind. We have to, it's that complete readiness to be transformed. And his character is, is, uh, is not a new coinage, a new face, whose features far transcend the human nature and all its possibilities. You must ask for that transformation that new vision. And, you know, I've, I've seen this, like, with the weakening of religion in society, it's as though we get the appearance of more and more self-help books, um, more and more stores that help you to fix this or that, more speakers on t- giving TED Talks, solutions to obesity, solutions to worry, to anxiety, how to live mindfulness, how to do this and that, all these kind of uh, very kind of micro, in some ways micro issues, right? And uh, of course, these are good books. I mean, they have very good solutions uh, and good talks, no doubt. But often they have a very limited scope. Mm-hmm. Naturally, they can be used for the good, but often their scope is very uh, human, and uh, our vocation really refers to a very fundamental transformation and, and redemption that we have to ask for. And it it's really has a supernatural goal. A conversion is a supernatural thing. And the difference also with those limited human goals is that they, they may seek to change certain aspects of, our, of ourselves in some way, but not as a, of our character as a whole, not of our priesthood as a whole. Those self-help books or videos and so forth, they, they want to eradicate this defect or acquire that virtue. For that Chinese gangster, he realized that his issue was with, uh, with anger. 
he and he actually did that. He went to anger management uh, courses and all this. That's what led to his violence. But he realized that despite going to anger management courses and dealing with that, he still felt this deep emptiness. The emptiness that was hovering over him because he hadn't really uh, understood the reality of death yet. And then he came to realize after his conversion that, uh, you know, that, uh, that the deeper conversion he was looking for was something more deeper in the heart that had to affect his entire life. And that at the root of that is what he had inherited. You know, the reality of original sin. I don't think he used that expression, original sin, but he, he understood it as a kind of inheriting a damaged uh, heart. Like yeah, genetically, you've inherited this kind of heart and because of your dad, etc. It's genetic uh, predisposition that you have. And we all have that predisposition that we have inherited to sin, to selfishness. Von uh. Hildebrand says that the Christian is intent on becoming another man in all things in regard to both what is bad and what is naturally good in him. He knows that what is naturally good, too, is insufficient before God. What is naturally good is insufficient. That it, too, must submit to the supernatural transformation, the recreation, we might say, by the new principle of supernatural life conveyed to him by baptism. And of course, not all have this radical readiness to change. Only those aware, really, of the fullness of the import of their call, of their, of their vocation. And that's what he describes. He says there are many Catholics whose readiness to change is, is merely a conditional one. He says they, they exert themselves to keep the commandments and to get rid of such qualities as they have recognized to be sinful, but they lack the will and the readiness to become new men all in all, to break with all purely natural standards, to view all things in a supernatural light. They prefer to evade the act of metanoia, a true conversion of the heart, since with Undisturbed consciences, they cling to all that appears to them legitimate by human standards. That's when we, when we cling too much to the self-help mode of existence. And that's a good thing humanly. But he insists a lot on this uh, unreadiness to be completely transformed. So he describes how their, their conscience permits them to remain uh, entrenched in their self assertion. Interesting uh, example he gives, he says they don't feel the obligation of loving their enemies. They don't feel that obligation, which is of course a supernatural obligation. It's, we have to love our enemies. It's a little bit what happened with this gangster. He, his, his father was for him like, a, like an enemy. He says they let their pride have its way within certain limits. They insist on the right of giving play to their natural reactions in answer to any humiliation. 
And we think it's natural that I get mad here. It's natural that I get annoyed. It's natural that, you know, and, and we may give way, give, give way. Or they th he says uh, an interesting passage. He says they maintain a self-evident their claim to the world's respect. They dread being looked upon as fools of Christ. They accord a certain role to human respect, and are anxious to stand justified, justified in the eyes of the world. And that can happen to us. We stand anxious to be justified in the eyes of the world. And, uh, of course, we know that grace only works if we have that real readiness to change. And so during a retreat, we have to go to that soft underbelly and see, what do I need to really change in? What must I do to really become another man? It does not mean to literally relinquish everything in the sense of what might be the evangelical councils, you know, that live poverty like the religious uh, might do, or, or those, you know, th those are very good, but those, that's a very particular, unique call. Hmm? We just have to relinquish the old self. The one that seeks merely natural standards. And we ask the Lord now to open us to really, entirely open ourselves to the action of Christ in our soul. Hmm? As we remember those words of St. Paul, you know, put on the new man who, according to God, is created in, just in, in justice and in holiness of truth. That's what we want to do during the retreat, to put on the new man. If we can become a new man, a new priest, transformed from within, if only just in the way we go to Mass, in the way we do our confession, Naturally, if we can transform, we still have our own personality. We have our weaknesses, our strengths, uh, our interests. But somehow, uh, God's grace sort of makes all, turns all these realities into like a new, a new being. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have to have a deep uh, rectitude of intention and perhaps respond deep, more deeply to the, to the real essence of our priesthood. And perhaps uh, we can go to the parable of the two sons. Right? Because that account is not simply a kind of a riddle to see which is the correct one or which one are we. It seems as though the Lord is examining them like in a theology class at the seminary. You know, which one of these two did the will of the Father? With the, the, the one of the two sons, you know. Remember when he asks them, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards repented and went. Then he went to the second one and said the same. And he, and he said, I will go, sir. But he didn't go. He did not. Which of the two did the will of his father. They said, the first. He said to them, truly I say to you, tax collectors and harlots, go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you 
in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the harlots believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards repent and believe. Maybe those two sons, one who he says he won't go but then goes, the other one says he will go but then doesn't go, can be compared to two priests. Imagine those are two priests. They both carry out the same assignment. They both have a parish. And they can be doing two very different things. One of those priests may be very absorbed in not appearing bad in the eyes of the person who's given him the, the assignment. And he says, yes, yes, I will. Yes, yes, Monsignor, I will do that. I will do that, absolutely. That parish in Timbuktu, yes, I will do that. No problem. While the other one really wants to serve. One is forming virtue, while the, the other one you know, is maybe too focused on human respect. He doesn't want to look bad in front of authority. It's true that this action can be better, a better step than simply refusing to do the task. But as long as it isn't followed by a series of further steps, a person would you know, not really be growing uh, in virtue. All this to say that is how important it is for us, for our conversion, our transformation, to rectify, to constantly purify our intention. And actually, we have to ask this now, so that we don't just go through the motions, St. Josemaria used to have that uh, phrase like, that uh, identifies the person who just does things, but not truly with his heart, not truly with rectitude. You know, in Spanish you say, cumplimiento, fulfillment. He broke the two, cumplo y miento, which is, I fulfill, but I'm lying. I'm not really doing this. You know, cumplo y miento. We don't want to fulfill, but really lie with our heart what we're doing. It's the conversion, that transformation that we need. Somewhere there we find the soft underbelly. Let's ask this of our Blessed Mother, so she can guide us to that true transformation. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you how to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.